Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host of the show and the content director here at Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Today, Bishop Barron is not with us. He's busily traveling all the way to Rome, where he's receiving an honorary doctorate at the Angelicum, also known as the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. But today, instead of leaving you hanging, we're going to share a snippet from a talk that Bishop Barron gave a few years back on a classic book by Blessed John Henry Newman, who hopefully will be canonized later this year and become Saint John Henry Newman. This talk was part of a series of talks Bishop Barron gave at the North American College, which is also in Rome. And we shared the first couple uh, clips from the initial talk on John Henry Newman's spiritual autobiography, the Apologia Pro Vita Sua, several episodes back. I think it's episodes 155 and 156. So if you missed that first talk on Newman's first book, you might want to go back and listen to that. But today we're going to play the first half of the second hour-long talk. This talk is on another classic, this one titled An Essay on the Development of Christian Doctrine, and is one of Newman's seminal texts uh, sharing how doctrine can develop over time. The analogy he uses is like an acorn that grows and develops into a big oak tree over time, that doctrine isn't just stagnant, but grows and uh, is reshapen by the lively play of interacting minds. We're going to share the first half of this talk here. We'll share the second half on a future episode. But before I turn it over to Bishop Barron, just a reminder, if you haven't already picked up your Word on Fire Classics edition of this book, Essay on the Development of Christian Doctrine, now's a great time to do it. Just go to wordonfireshow.com slash Newman. You can get a deluxe hardcover edition of the book with a beautiful ribbon bookmark. It also includes an introduction by Bishop Barron and a sketch of John Henry Newman, also by Bishop Barron. So pick up the book, read through it as you're listening to this episode. Again, find it at wordonfireshow.com slash Newman. Enjoy the first half of the talk. In the spring of 2010, I was privileged to be a scholar in residence at the Pontifical North American College in Rome. During my time in Rome, I delivered a series of lectures, including the talks on John Henry Newman. I was attempting to show the still remarkable relevance of Newman's thought to the life of the church in our time. Last time we looked at um, the Apologia Pro Vita Sua, which is obviously one of his uh, four great texts. It's also a great way to look at his uh, life and career. Remember, the four texts I think are the pivotal ones, are the Apologia, uh, the idea of a university, the grammar of ascent, and the text we'll look at tonight, which is the essay on the development of Christian doctrine. Of those four, it's by far the one that was most influential at Vatican II. Probably a lot of people, when they uh, invoke Newman, they're thinking of this text above all. It is a, a masterpiece. It's beautifully crafted. Uh, to me, here's the main thing to keep in mind about it. If you say development of doctrine today, would people think you're a liberal or conservative? I mean, almost certainly, well, he's a liberal. He believes in the development of doctrine. But for Newman, it was very much in service of a conservative principle, namely the anti-Protestant principle. This is an anti-Protestant book. Here's what he's trying to show. He's trying to show that what we have now within Catholicism, doctrinally and in terms of practice, are in fact developments from the biblical core. What he was arguing against was the Protestant uh, dismissal of much of the tradition as simply a falling away from biblical purity. So just keep that in mind as we begin, that, that I think the book is very much conservative in purpose, 
though it has to our ears and minds a kind of liberal uh, feel, the development of doctrine. Just a word about its composition, it's exactly mid-career. Remember I said last time Newman's life falls beautifully into two halves, 1801 to 1845, that's his uh, Protestant period, Anglican period, then 1845 to 1890, his Catholic period. This book is commenced in 1842 when he's in his last stages as an Anglican. Remember I mentioned in the summer of 1839, Newman uh, had this crisis. The seeds of his conversion were planted. So 1842, this is really developed, and now he's, he's on his deathbed, as he said, with regard to Anglicanism. The book is finished in 1846. He becomes Catholic 1845, so it bridges the, the two phases of his life. It makes the book, I think, fascinating, and in his own lifetime, it made it controversial because both sides didn't like it. The Protestants and the Anglicans didn't like it. The Catholics didn't like it. When Newman came here to Rome, remember, to do his studies, he was very interested in the Catholic reaction to this book. Well, it was pretty negative. Just as about 30 years later when he writes The Grammar of Ascent, there was a very negative reaction to that among uh, standard Catholic theologians. It took Newman a while to be accepted, really well into the 20th century. And again, it's figures like our current pope and his teachers, Balthazar and de Lubac and Danielu and others, Bouillet, who brought Newman into the forefront. But in his own lifetime, he was a, a rather uh, controversial figure. And this book was famously uh, controversial. Um, here's the opening line. Like all great writers, Newman is interested in the opening line. Uh, great writers like to uh, kind of encapsulate their whole argument in the line. He says this, Christianity has been long enough in the world to justify us in dealing with it as a fact in the world's history. Now, that's a packed little statement. Now, keep in mind, we're 1842. What's happening intellectually, especially on the continent, is the so-called rise of historical consciousness, right? Where intellectuals are realizing that ideas simply aren't given to court, but ideas tend to evolve and to change and develop over time. Think of Hegel on the continent, who's doing a whole philosophy around a sort of evolutionary view of being. And then think how it was applied in biology with Darwin, who's Newman's uh, contemporary. So the, the evolution of species. Well, in some ways, Newman's book is part of that general movement that rests upon the rise of historical consciousness. Again, how he anticipates things. Go 100 years later. Look at someone like Chenu in, in France, just before the council, who's saying, when looking at Aquinas, look at him as a 13th century Dominican who was dealing with very particular historical issues. Well, that, it took a while for that consciousness to kick in to the Catholic mind. Newman's one of the first ones to do it. So that's what the book is about. How do you explain the fact that Christianity has changed up and down the centuries? What's the best way to account for that? That's why he writes the book. In the beginning now, he holds off two counter-theories. The first one I've hinted at is the Protestant theory, namely that all the change we see, both doctrinally and in practice, represent fallings away from the biblical purity. So Luther is one of the first ones to go ad fontes, right, go back to the scripture, and to construe almost the rest of it as a corruption or a devolution. Well, Newman's commentary is... That just puts us in a very unfortunate position of having to see almost all of Christian history as a mistake. And he just thought intuitively that can't be right. From that comes one of his famous one-liners, the one who discovers history becomes a Catholic, which I think is dead right. It's still right today. You find a lot of evangelical Protestants, when they go back to history, they look at, at the patristic period, the medieval period, they really see it, 
They tend to become Catholics. Well, see, that's what Newman got. Remember, he's an historian above all. He's an historian of the ancient church. And it was the discovery of history that led him to Catholicism. So he thought the Protestant answer was too simplistic. What was the classical Anglican theory to handle this? It was a theory rooted in uh, Vincent of Lerins. Now, we read him in the office every year. Remember, it's that great text on development. And it was very influential on Newman. But here's what the Anglicans liked about uh, Vincent of Lerins. He said, sure, there's been a lot of disagreement. There's a lot of uh, contradiction even within Christianity. But, but there's a core of Christian belief which has been believed in his famous formula, semper ubique et ab omnibus, always, everywhere, and by everybody. So granted, there's a lot of disagreement around the edges, but there's this central core that people have always, everywhere believed. Well, Newman bought that for a long time. Remember, as a young man, he's a, he's a convinced Anglican, via media sort of guy. He's writing this book as the via media is falling apart in his own mind, see? Now he says, look it, it's just untenable, the Vincent of Laren's position. Why? Because in regard to some of the central doctrines of the church, Christology and Trinity come right to mind, you don't find this absolute consensus. You don't find something believed semper ubique et ab omnibus. In fact, some of the leading patristic figures at different times in their careers undermined or didn't believe in key doctrines. You just don't have this clear consensus. So neither the Protestant position nor the Anglican position is right. What does Newman propose? And that's what the book is about. He proposes the theory of the development of doctrine. The development of doctrine. Doctrine that begins biblically, yes indeed. He's very biblical, mind you. Read his sermons. But this doctrine now unfolds, evolves, develops over time. This book now is an amplification of that basic theoretical uh, position. Okay? Now, how does he get at it? He gets at it, I think, in a very interesting way. And here you see how massively influential he was on someone like Bernard Lonergan. Have you guys read Lonergan at all in your careers? Uh, Insight and, and those great texts from the 50s. Um, Lonergan said he read Newman's Grammar of Ascent 17 times before he put pen to paper to write insight. So he had been immersed in Newman before he sat down to write his great book on epistemology. What's central to Lonergan? Lonergan said, and here it's very Newman-esque, there are two types of emptiness. You can be empty like a box or empty like a stomach. (laughs) What's the difference? A box is just dumbly empty. It's just empty, and you put things in it. And they sit there. But a stomach can be empty, but not dumbly so. The stomach knows what it wants, and it knows what to do with what it gets when it gets it. Lonergan didn't like the tabula rasa view of epistemology with its roots in in Aristotle. You know, it's right to a degree, but the trouble is, as though the mind is just dumbly there, and then experience just writes on it, like it's a, a tablet. No, no. The mind, now here's Newman, this is where Lonergan got it from. The mind is a very restless and hungry and active little animal. The mind takes in an idea, but it doesn't just sit there. The mind turns it over, analyzes it, abstracts from it, 
compares it to other ideas, contrasts it, turns it continually around. The mind is a very active thing. Now, mind you, Thomas Aquinas knew that in referring to the intellectus agens, didn't he? The agent intellect, which is always saying, quid sit. What is that? And then restlessly moving on to the next quid sit. What is that? Abstraction for Aquinas is not tabula rasa, it's intellectus agens, the mind actively going after things. Well, Newman is very sensitive to this. Listen to this now. An idea, a real idea, quote, is commensurate with the sum total of its possible aspects. Now there, I think Newman anticipates by several decades, Edmund Husserl. Have you read some of Husserl, the founder of phenomenology? That's very close to Husserl's view. Husserl talks about intuiting an essence. And what he means is walking gradually around an object or an experience and seeing its various profiles. That was Husserl's term. Newman's term here is just facets, aspects. For Husserl, to intuit an essence is not just to see something dumbly. It just strikes my eyes and strikes my mind. No, no, the mind is active. It moves around an object. It takes it in from all different perspectives. And only in that process does it come to know what the thing is, intuiting an essence. Well, again, Newman, a real idea is commensurate with the sum total of its possible aspects. You know, I was thinking about it today when I went over these notes. Uh, think of something like uh, St. Peter's Basilica, which is not a, an idea, it's just a, it's an object, right? But think of what you have to take in fully to understand St. Peter's Basilica. I think of all the different ways I've seen it. I was up on the roof today reading a little bit, so looking from the knack roof at it, it's a great view of St. Peter's. You take it in in a very vivid way. The other day I was up on uh, the top of the geniculum near the Garibaldi statue looking back at St. Peter's with the sun going down. Uh, just two days ago, I was walking, I went up to the Spanish stairs and, and walked up there to the, the church and looked back at the little dome of St. Peter's. I saw it for the very first time in my life when I was a, a student in Paris and I flew down to Rome. And I think I had this right, I have this vivid memory of seeing it from the sky as the plane was coming down over Rome. Okay, what's the point? The point is to take in what St. Peter's Basilica is, you would need in some ways all of these aspects, all these profiles. What's the mind doing? The mind is actively jumping around, looking, analyzing, abstracting, comparing, contrasting. Boy, how St. Peter's looks different from this angle than from that angle. How about when the sun comes up, when the sun goes down, how different it looks? The mind is like an acrobat as it leaps around the object. You know, mind you, look at John Paul II's writings who studied uh, Husserlian phenomenology. That's all he's doing, isn't it? That can make his writing difficult sometimes to read because he's just slowly, patiently walking around an object of consideration. That's the phenomenological method. How about this quote now? Ordinarily, an idea is not brought home to the intellect as objective except through this variety. That's good, isn't it? In other words, before you get this really rich variety of perspectives, your, your sense of it is very subjective. It's very limited. But only through this process of, of analyzing, weighing, judging, comparing, contrasting, does the mind come through with more objectivity. Another quote, There's no one aspect deep enough 
to exhaust the contents of a real idea. That's cool, isn't it? It's like a little stupid idea. You might be able to take it in one glance. It's like bad art, isn't it? If something's really bad, I mean, you just take it in. Oh, yeah, yeah, I got it. Yeah, good. But that's it. That's all you've got. It's all you need. But a great work of art, like St. Peter's Dome or like the Sistine Chapel, is you have to spend a lot of time and allow it to unfold itself before you. That's Newman's idea. This development of an object or of an idea is not the obscuring of the idea, but on the contrary, it's clarification. That might be the master claim of this book. See, the evolution of an idea, the development of doctrine, doesn't obscure it, it clarifies it. Here's a cool image now, um, and I'll give you the the quote, because it's so beautiful to hear Newman's uh, English. But the idea, too, is very rich. Quote, it's sometimes said, the stream is clearest near the spring. Whatever use may be fairly made of this image, it does not apply to the history of a philosophy or a belief, which on the contrary is more equable and purer and stronger when its bed has become deep and broad and full. That's a lovely image, isn't it? And it's a corrective to an excessive reliance on the ad fontes move, the o source move, back to the sources. Now, whether you find that in the Protestant uh, uh, communion or in our own communion, Newman's is a corrective to it. Again, listen. It's sometimes said, the stream is clearest near the spring. So you want real Christianity? Now do the Martin Luther thing. Leap over history. Go right back to the fontes. Go back to the biblical sources. You'll get the real thing. Newman says, though, whatever use may be fairly made of this image, so maybe there's some room for it, it does not apply to the history of a philosophy or a belief, which on the contrary is more equable, purer and stronger when its bed has become deep and broad and full. Now stay with that. Of course, the river he's talking about here, a spring that now gives rise to a river. Think of the Mississippi. Uh, Anyone from Minnesota? (laughs) So the Minnesotans, right, the the source of the Mississippi is relatively uninteresting. Now, it's interesting. I'm not bad-mouthing it, but it's relatively uninteresting. I was down in New Orleans uh, some years ago on a retreat, and I'm at a Jesuit retreat center that was right on the Mississippi, though over a little ridge, so you couldn't actually see it directly. But I'm in my room, and before my wondering eyes there appeared, this giant ocean-going vessel that looked for all the world like it was floating on the, on the ground. It was, just, it was going bad. Thought, what in the world? So I went out, and it was, of course, the Mississippi down there. It's got this huge, you know, the mouth of it is huge. Having taken in all these tributaries, having, having deepened and broadened, and down there, it's this mighty, you know, body of water that can hold an ocean-going vessel. Well, that's Newman's image. Yes, we have the sources of Christianity back in the biblical period. But isn't it likely that in the course of time, as that river has taken in all kinds of influences, as that river has deepened and broadened, that now we at the mouth of it actually have a richer, clearer, more satisfying sense of what Christianity is about? 
if Thomas Aquinas sat down with St. Peter, he got in a time machine, went back to St. Peter's time, and, and talked about, you know, natures and persons and hypostases, and, I mean, Peter probably would be clueless about that, right? I mean, Peter had the great confession. You're the Mashiach, the son of the living God. I mean, he got it right. But it might have taken you know, Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and many others fully to turn that image around, to explore the fullness of that idea. That's the development of doctrine over time. Here's the most famous line from the book that everyone quotes, but it belongs in this context. It's often quoted out of context. Newman says, In a higher world, it might be otherwise. But here below, to live is to change, and to be perfect is to have changed often. It's a nice line, isn't it? In a higher world, it might be otherwise. Maybe in Plato's world, it's otherwise, in the world of forms. But here below, and see, Newman, mind you, Newman is an Englishman. Remember, the English, as opposed to the Continentals, are always more pragmatic. They're always more empirical. And they kind of tweak the noses of Continental philosophers for flying off into Platonic or Hegelian abstraction. Englishmen like what's real and down to earth. So here below, pal, I don't know what it's like in Plato land or Hegel land, but here below, to live is to change. And to be perfect is to have changed often. Now, this is not some you know, invitation to you know, wild liberalism. It's in this epistemological setting. He's talking about a living idea, right? A living idea, which a mind turns around and allows to emerge. The other image Newman uses is the diamond that you throw up into the air, and it catches the light, and you catch it. And you throw it up again, and it catches the light in different ways. And it takes you maybe a lifetime of tossing that diamond up in the air before the light catches every aspect of it. To live is to change. The idea of the incarnation develops, thank God. The idea of the Trinity develops over time because they're living ideas. Another line of his here from this opening section is, ideas do not exist in a platonic heaven or on the printed page. They exist in the play of lively minds. That's lovely, isn't it? And it's dead right. I got the idea, it's right here in the book. Well, that's not the idea, that's just a vague symbol of, of, uh, of the one person's intellectual uh, work. But now your intellectus agens better take that idea and play and turn and twist and analyze and abstract and so on. And now make it even more interesting. How your thought grows into a body of thought. Because now I take that idea that I've worked around and I throw it to you, right? And you do the same thing with it. And then you toss it back to me for a little more uh, exercise. And I play with it and toss it to somebody else. And now a whole body of thought is developing. Good, good. That means the idea is alive. That means more aspects are emerging. That means we're getting greater clarity about it. The river's deepening. Shift the metaphor, he also uses this one. The tree, the plant. Think of the biblical time as the planting of seeds. What do seeds do if they're alive? <laughs> they grow. They develop. They take in nutrients, and they take in the sun, and they take in the, the uh, rain, and so on, and they grow into a great tree. Don't think of doctrine, Newman says, as like a football that was given by Christ to his apostles and then just passed it on, passing on football from generation to generation. No, no, it's much more like a river, much more like a tree. 
He likes organic images rather than these static, more modern images like buildings. That's a Cartesian image. He likes organic images. I think he's absolutely right about that. That's the better way to think about ideas. Okay. Now, what follows from this? And maybe even some are getting nervous as this uh, idea is being developed. Newman now provides, I think it's a stroke of genius on his part, a very interesting balance. It's precisely because ideas develop that we need an infallible authority. It's not opposed to development. It's, it's, it's a requirement of development that we have an infallible authority. Now, how come? Because as ideas grow and develop, they can also devolve or become corrupt. Not every change is a positive change. Sometimes living things develop in a way that's counterproductive to their health. Think of the development of a cancer in your system. Think of a branch on a tree that's died. Think of a diseased section of an animal, right? Things can develop, but in a counterproductive way. Therefore, what do you need? You need, at every step of the process, a living voice of authority who can decide between a legitimate development, and a corruption. You need an infallible authority. You know, one of his earlier works as an Anglican was called the prophetic office. And Newman here talked about, I mean, he was part of the prophetic office. It means all those teachers and preachers and researchers and evangelists and proclaimers and biblical exegetes, all those people who are exploring the truth of Christian doctrine. They are the ones responsible in many ways for the development of doctrine. Right? They're the ones who allow the thing to emerge over time. Now he says, I recognize that that collection of teachers is not self-policing, but requires a voice outside of itself to police it in order that it might be fruitful and constructive. You know, it, of course, for him, it's the kingly office. And that's another dimension of Newman we can talk about, the priestly office, the prophetic office, and the kingly office. Well, here he recognizes the importance of a kingly office precisely to discipline the prophetic office. I'll quote uh, Cardinal George a couple times tonight. Here's the first one. Um, years ago, I was at a meeting at the University of Chicago, and um, a lot of high-powered people were there. David Tracy, do you know his work? I mean, one of the smartest people in the Catholic world today. David Tracy was there. Jean-Luc Marion was there, the greatest Catholic philosopher in the world right now. Uh, a number of other University of Chicago professor types were all there. And the issue was this whole question, really, of, of academic freedom and et cetera, et cetera. Well, to the meeting, they invited Cardinal George. And I think much to their surprise, he came. He came to the meeting. And, of course, Cardinal George is a, a cardinal. He's a bishop. But he's also an academic, I mean, who taught for many years, who's been around faculty lounges a lot of his life, so he knows that world. Anyway, David Tracy himself gave a very spirited defense of the freedom of the academy vis-a-vis -vis authority. You know, the academy uh, should do its work, and it's legitimately self-policing. That, that, you know, you write an article, if it's kind of a stupid article, your colleagues will tell you by their reviews, etc. And so the academy doesn't need outside authorities. Cardinal George is listening, and he had his full cardinal. He had his cardinal outfit on and the beanie and everything, you know. And uh, he, Tracy finished, and he said, 
and he knows Tracy well. They go out for dinner all the time. And he said, oh, come on, David. <laughs> I know you people. You couldn't even decide on what to order for lunch. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the fact that, uh, or the thought that academics on their own could police themselves, come on. The Cardinal was echoing Newman's point of view. It seems to me that you need something like a kingly authority to determine the difference between development and corruption. Um, here's a nice little formula. If revelation was in the divine dispensation, and clearly it was, and if revelation develops, and we see that it clearly does, then we need some infallible authority to make this determination. It's a neat little argument. I think a very uh, telling one. He says this, just as the conscience is the infallible guide in natural religion. He has a lot to say about that throughout his writings. So, quote, the apostle or the pope or the church or the bishop is the infallible guide in revealed religion. Now, Protestants, he knows, have urged, no, no, you don't need popes. You've got the Bible. The Bible's your authority. You hear that all the time, even today, don't you? We don't need authority beyond the Bible. There's the living word of God. So if things are getting off kilter, just appeal to the Bible. Well, come on, says Newman. Even in Luther's own lifetime, it became clear there is no limpid, lucid reading of the Bible that everyone just naturally agrees to. The Bible's open to a wide variety of interpretations. So again, even in Luther's lifetime, I mean, he had this tremendous confidence that once you let the Bible into the hands of the ordinary people, put it in their own languages, there'd be this clear consensus. Well, that never happened. That never, the Bible is not self-interpreting. Earlier in his own career, what had Newman said? I mean, he knew that the biblical appeal was not uh, sufficient. But he had said, no, no, but antiquity, that's the voice. What Augustine and Chrysostom and Jerome and... and uh, and Gregory and uh, Maximus, that's antiquity. That's the criterion. If your new idea is out of step with antiquity, then it's a corruption. And that's good enough, Newman thought. But see, what occurred to him by this time in his life was, say what you want about antiquity. It is not a living voice. It's not a living voice that can here and now, in situ, resolve a question. Only the Catholic Church he saw by this time in his life claimed to have precisely that living voice that could make these determinations. Now, um, here's a nice little summary. I should read this to you first. Um, Quote, If Christianity is both social and dogmatic and intended for all ages, it must, humanly speaking, have an infallible expounder. Else you will secure unity of form at the loss of unity of doctrine, or unity of doctrine at the loss of unity of form. You'll have to choose between a comprehension of opinions or a resolution into parties. There's something about the lack of an infallible authority that will, that will lead to the dissolution of the body. That's what he began to see. Well, we hope you enjoyed the first half of this talk from Bishop Barron on John Henry Newman's essay on the development of Christian doctrine. Again, we're going to air the second half in an upcoming episode of the Word on Fire show. In the meantime, two final things I wanted to share with you. One, just a reminder, if you liked what you heard about this classic book and you don't have a copy yourself, 
be sure to order the Word on Fire Classics edition of John Henry Newman's text. You can find it at wordonfireshow.com slash Newman. You'll get a beautiful hardcover edition of the book with a nice ribbon bookmark. It's got an introduction by Bishop Barron along with a sketch of John Henry Newman, also by Bishop Barron. It's just a gorgeous book and you'll enjoy reading it. So pick up your copy at wordonfireshow.com slash Newman. Also, one last reminder here, as we move through the series of Lent, we've created something really special for you. It's a series of video reflections by Bishop Barron on each of the stations of the cross. They're beautiful, meditative. I think they'll really help you during this Lenten season. So check those out by visiting stations.wordonfire.org. That's the website, stations.wordonfire.org. Or just go on YouTube and search Bishop Barron Stations of the Cross and you'll find them there. Well, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show.